Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 23rd, lunchtime, uh, early afternoon on the West Coast of the United States. None of you are going to actually get to watch or listen to this until the first week of May, but let's just imagine that you're watching now, April the 23rd. What's the state of the world? And the state of the world, of course, according to the gloomiest, doomiest newspaper in the world, the New York Times, is extreme doom. According to the Times today, April 23rd, um, COVID has upended a century of patterns meaning that the U.S. death rate in 2020 was the highest, even higher than the so-called calamity of the 1918 flu epidemic. Things are terrible then, very, very doomy. Uh, India apparently now is uh, scrambling to supply oxygen as its COVID-19 patients gasp for breath. God knows who are doing these New York Times headlines. Things are even worse in Brazil. There's a hunger epidemic. And if COVID wasn't bad enough, we're apparently, according to the doomy New York Times, on the verge of a climate catastrophe too. So how to make sense of doom, our doomy times? I have the perfect person. Uh, Neil Ferguson is the author. Everyone will know him, of course. Scotland's most famous historian and writer and controversial political thinker. He has a new book out, uh, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Uh, Neil, talking to me from the Stanford campus in California, just down the road from me. How doomy are we in uh, late April, early May 2021? Not as doomy as the New York Times. Part of the point of, of writing this book was to try to put our current crisis, our current disaster, COVID, in perspective. And the idea that it's worse than 1918-19, the so-called Spanish influenza, I think is really a stretch because that pandemic killed a much larger proportion of the world's population, 40 times larger, roughly speaking. This pandemic's much closer in its scale to the 1957-58 influenza, which most people have forgotten, the so-called Asian flu. And as for the really big disasters in history, the Black Death of the mid-14th century was three orders of magnitude more disastrous in terms of the proportion of the population that it killed. But, you know, one of the points I make in the book is that doom sells. We're fascinated by the idea of calamity. Uh, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, and so naturally, the media tend to make disasters sound larger than historically they really, they really are. And the same is true for the debate on climate change. People are predicting the end of the world in, is it 12 years or is it now 11 since AOC made that prediction a while back? And, and the, the idea that the world is going to end imminently is, is a really old idea that humans find deeply attractive. It's at the heart of most of the 
uh, great religions of the world. But as you may have noticed, people have predicted precisely, you know, 100 of the last zero ends of the world. It hasn't happened. Of course, it isn't going to happen. Um, why then the need for a book on doom? Well, I think partly in order to get this crisis into uh, a rational perspective, uh, to learn what uh, went wrong last year, a lot did. In my view, uh, the United States and most Western countries handled the pandemic very badly. Uh, and it didn't need to be this way. Think of Taiwan, right next door to the People's Republic of China, where the pandemic began. 11 people have died of COVID in Taiwan. And they didn't have to do massive economically disruptive lockdowns to achieve that. So partly we need to learn from some serious mistakes that were made. But we also need to learn that you've got to prepare for more than one possible disaster. And right now, I think we're making the mistake of focusing on climate change to the exclusion of almost every other plausible disastrous scenario. And we were doing that before COVID. I remember being at the World Economic Forum in Davos in January of, of last year, and all the agenda was climate change. And I was wandering around the conference hall saying, you do realize a pandemic has actually begun, and there are people flying here from Wuhan with this virus. So I think the danger of the way that we go about things is that we focus on the wrong disaster scenario, and then we're blindsided when something comes along that Bill Gates didn't predict. Yeah, you say this in the book, um, uh, that you were wandering around uh, the Davos, uh, suggesting that this was really going to change the world, and, and no one seemed to get it. But uh, Neil, I don't know if you remember, in, I think it was in 2018, um, I did a, a written interview with you for LitHub for uh, your last book, um, uh, The Square and the Tower, wonderful read. And I, one of the questions I asked you was, um, you warned that today's world frequently resembles a giant network on the verge of cataclysmic outage. And I asked you to list some of those potential cataclysmic outages and you had lots of stuff about the Russians and the Chinese and Facebook, but nothing about COVID. So these things are very hard to predict, aren't they? By definition, and that's part of the problem, that the things that are really disastrous, and, and there are others, uh, imagine if we had a really massive volcanic eruption, a Tambora, the last really big volcanic eruption that, that affected the global climate was Tambora 1815. That, that would change overnight the conversation from global warming to global cooling. But there's no way statistically to say when that will happen, just as we can't really know when there'll be a really big earthquake uh, in this part of the world where we're both sitting. And so although there are always Cassandras going around predicting catastrophe, uh, most of the predictions, most of the prophets of doom are wrong and the prophecies don't come true. So you actually can't sit down and say, well, there's going to be a cataclysmic volcanic eruption or a pandemic on this particular day of the week in this particular month in this particular year. It doesn't work that way. You therefore have to, I think, develop a slightly different approach than the one we currently have. Right now, we have a highly bureaucratic approach to uh, disaster preparedness. We had endless plans for a pandemic uh, scenario in the Health and Human Services Department, uh, right across the bureaucracy, pages and pages of pandemic preparedness. We even have an undersecretary 
at HHS, whose job, his one job is pandemic preparedness, but none of it worked when there actually was a pandemic. And I suspect the same would be true of pretty much any kind of disaster that, that struck. We've got a bureaucratic mindset. We have failed. We completely failed. We're still failing to use technology in an optimal way to deal with the problem of contagion, even though some countries have shown how to do it. I mentioned Taiwan. Uh, the same is true of, of South Korea. So there are some puzzles here about the way we think about disaster. It's almost as if we would rather have a very meticulous plan for one particular disaster, say climate change, but just ignore all the others. If that's the approach, then we are going to get we are going to get blindsided the way we were last year. Uh, Neil, you you mentioned the, the the Brits. You're obviously from there. You're currently in the United States. Uh, book t- uh, book covers always speak to me <laughs> very colorfully. Let's look at the two covers of your books. This uh, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe with the Golf Player. I think it's in Sonoma with the, the forest fire behind him. And then uh, the British version, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. Same book, but with the uh, the Bruegel, the, the famous Bruegel, uh, I think it's the 14th century Bruegel painting behind it. Um, so one yes. is a book of a historian. The other is the book, I, I think, of a... Of a a controversial, uh, a, a controversial political thinker. Is the book more in in as a have you written the book more as a historian or as a controversial or as a, a controversial political thinker? It's a history book. In the end, this is the only general history of disasters that exists, and it gives you every disaster that you can think of, and it tries to relate them to one another. Because I think a little bit like Tolstoy's Happy Families, all disasters have certain things in in common, Uh, whether it's uh, the Titanic going down, Vesuvius erupting, or COVID-19. And so I wanted to try and show that there is this common feature to, to disaster. But of course, American and British tastes are different, as you and I know, having spent time in both parts of the world. I chose both those covers. Uh, British readers want a historian to write a history book, and the past is really what they want to know about. American readers, while they may say they're interested in history, are essentially interested in the present and future. And if you offer them straight history, and it's not George Washington or Alexander Hamilton, they're likely to move on through the bookstore and go somewhere else. So I, you know, I think one has to recognize that. Uh, but of course, it's the same book between those uh, different dust jackets. You present doom as a window. I think for you, and perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong, for you, these catastrophes are less interesting as as catastrophes and more important in terms of what they tell us. You say uh, a catastrophe lays bare the societies and states that it strikes. It is a moment of truth, of revelation, exposing some as fragile, others as resilient. It's almost as if this was invented by historians to help you with your craft. What has COVID taught you about the world? Well, it revealed some things that we really didn't know. At the end of 2019, uh, it was generally thought that the United States and the United Kingdom were amongst the countries best prepared for a public health emergency. And that turned out not to be true. Uh, and so often disaster reveals something that's been concealed because it's the it's the ultimate stress test and 
uh, oddly enough, uh, the, the countries that were supposed to do well did really very poorly, but they didn't do the worst. I mean, sometimes you get the impression reading the New York Times that the US had the worst possible experience of COVID and it was all the fault of Donald Trump and now everything has been magically fixed because he's been replaced. But that I think is quite misleading. And this is the political part of the book that you alluded to, Andrew. I try to show that blaming it all on Trump is a cop-out and it allows us to ignore what clearly went very wrong at CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which really can't be blamed on Trump. The bureaucracy there utterly screwed up testing to the point that they made it harder to get a COVID test at the beginning of the pandemic, when they should have been making it much, much easier. So I think it's important to recognize that, that what we saw, what was laid bare, was not the incompetence of Donald Trump, though he certainly showed himself to be incompetent in many ways. It was also that our entire bureaucracy really did quite badly uh, at the job it was supposed to do. And I think the same was true in the UK, where the media wanted to make it all about Boris Johnson. But in reality, the experts had actually bungled it and gave him faulty advice, uh, which swung from complacency, well, let's just let this thing get us to herd immunity, to total panic. We have to lock the economy down in the space of, uh, of a few weeks. So I think when you, when you look at a disaster, it doesn't really matter whether it's a, a war, which we would think of as a man-made disaster, or a pandemic, which we tend to think of as a natural disaster. There's always a, a political element. It's ultimately political decisions that determine how many people die, uh, which is why Taiwan has had a completely different experience from the United States. And it's also politics that determine the consequences. Some disasters don't really have consequences. A lot of people may die, but ultimately we forget. 1957, 58, nobody remembers that even my mother who was alive then has no recollection of that pandemic because it really didn't have any consequences uh, and some disasters were really not filming. is that why you dedicate the book to your mother to remind her well I dedicate, I dedicate the book to my mother partly because she had a tougher time than the rest of the family she was completely on her own for a year in a village in Oxfordshire and was obviously more vulnerable than the younger members of the family and it was it was tough on her on the other hand she struck me as being remarkably resilient and then I realized that to her generation who'd lived through World War II uh, and really some pretty tough times after it, this wasn't the worst thing ever. And something that was in many ways less terrifying, uh, much less terrifying than the war. So the point of this book is, and it cheered me up, actually. You wouldn't think a book called Doom would cheer you up, but it cheered me up to write it because I realized that this really, for all its awfulness, is not nearly as bad a disaster as people living uh, in my mother's generation have, have been through. You suggest in the book that you're a, a, a doomy person. I looked up doomiest. I'm not sure if the word actually exists. It's uh, one anagram is moodiest, another is sodomite. I don't know what that says about it. But um, are you a doomy <laughs> person, Neil? I think if you grew up in Glasgow, there is a certain innate pessimism. You'll, you'll maybe remember the character of Private Fraser in Dad's Army. We're doomed was his catchphrase. Yes. We are slightly pessimistic people, but when you look at our sporting record, it's understandable. And uh, if you are pessimistic, you're, you're rarely disappointed and sometimes pleasantly surprised. Americans are not like that. And moving here has been fascinating to me because I, I meet people who, when I ask them, how are you, reply, fantastic. Nobody in Glasgow would say fantastic in answer to the question, how are you? And so Americans, I, even on the verge of death, would suggest that they're fantastic. Yeah, we're both in California. The Brits have a particular 
uh, interest, I think, in in death and and, and California. Remember uh, Mitford's great book. Uh, you suggest in the book that 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 the COVID crisis is changing our meaning of death, or, or or allows you as a historian, a writer, to make sense of changing ways of thinking about death. What has twenty twenty and twenty one taught you about death itself or perceptions of death? Well, I think, and this is a point Evelyn Waugh made many years ago in The Loved One, the answer is that Americans don't really believe in death at all. And they regard any death as an avoidable calamity. That's why they don't use the word die. People pass here, whereas where you and I come from, you pass a football. So I think there's a kind of uh, a denial of death. And uh, when you explain to people that, you know, actually every year, a very significant number of people die anyway, regardless of whether there's a pandemic or not. And the pandemic increases that number, but it doesn't It doesn't sort of create death. Uh, most of the people who died were in fact uh, in, the, in, their, uh, in old age by a large margin, uh, something like three quarters were, were, were elderly uh, people. And, and so they lost years of life, but it wasn't like they were kids. Uh, and it makes a big difference in a disaster like 57, 58. A lot of teenagers died in that in that pandemic. And so they lost many more years of life. And you have this concept of a quality adjusted life year. Uh, if you think of it in those terms, then COVID's actually one of the kindest pandemics, because at least until recently, and there are some new variants of which this isn't true, but at least until recently, this was a disease that disproportionately killed the elderly. Uh, whereas most pandemics in history kill very young people, uh, as well as very old people, and some like 1918, 19 and 57-58 kill people in the prime of, of life. So I think our relationship to death has, has been uh, thrown into a rather strange relief by this. Uh, I don't think we really deal with death in the Western world in a particularly honest way. Uh, and, and that means that when there is a disaster of this sort, uh, we're more traumatized. Should we it. deal with death honestly, though, Neil? I mean, is it something that we would want to deal with honestly? Isn't that the nature of art? If we dealt with it honestly, there'd be no books, no, there'd be no Bruegel. Well, I think one has to to confront death, and medieval artists were much better at confronting the realities of death than than we are today. Part of the problem about mod modern medicine is that it tends to hide death away, uh, and so many of us are wholly unprepared for the experience of of a parent or another loved one dying because it's not talked about, uh, and, and people use euphemisms. This was Evelyn War's point in in the loved one. And I think that's not smart because we have to recognize that it is uh, inevitable. Uh, not even the billionaires of Silicon Valley have figured out how to cheat death. And we have to be ready to deal with it. And I think, I think our culture has become in denial about death. This is an argument that the French historian Philippe Arias made, made many years ago, that if you look back through, through time, in the past, there was a relationship to death similar to the relationship we have uh, with marriage, weddings, the relationship we have with birth. It was part of, of society, part of community life. Now we hide death away. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. And it means that we're not really 
prepared for it when it when it strikes people close to us and that leaves us much more traumatized than we should be remember religions decline which is happening even now in the united states it's been true for some time in europe makes actually the reality of death harder to to grapple with if one doesn't believe in any kind of afterlife there's a finality uh, to death which uh, again is is harder to deal with than the consolations of religion uh, Neil, the subtitle of the book is The Politics of Catastrophe. You make it very clear that um, that to make sense of COVID, we have to understand politics. You said uh, politics explain why World War II killed 25 times as many Germans as Americans. The politics explain why COVID-19 has thus killed 18 times as many Americans as Germans. But isn't also the book and your thinking about technology and disaster. Your last book, as I said, was The Square and the Tower. And it seems more than coincidental that we have a networked catastrophe in our age of networks. What's the relationship? Yeah, I didn't mention it in that interview that, that we did back then, Andrew. But actually, in the book, I make the point that if you create a highly networked world, not only in terms of the internet, but in terms of travel, you will increase your probability uh, of a pandemic. And in some ways, uh, having written the square in the tower, I was sort of on the alert when I got that first email, I think it was on January the 3rd, saying, strange new disease in Wuhan, China, what do you think? I think we, and this is one of the arguments I develop in, in Doom, I think we have made huge advances in medical science, but at the same time, by creating an extraordinarily integrated, globalized uh, planet with unprecedented volumes of travel, we've made ourselves more vulnerable to, to new pathogens. And I think we should understand this problem of a networked society doesn't just take the form of a new coronavirus spreading rapidly around the world. We can also, I think, look forward to in future and possibly in the near future to network outages in the, the realm of the Internet. It's, it's now probably our, our greatest vulnerability that we've become so reliant on this mode of communication. And in the coming conflict, which I write about in the book between the U.S. and China or the U.S., China and Russia, since they'll probably work together against the U.S., that's probably going to be a critical battlefield. And cyber warfare is going on all the time. I mean, it's not like nuclear warfare, which was either happening or not happening. Uh, cyber warfare is a permanent state of affairs. So I think this networked world has certain vulnerabilities, uh, which are really the things that offset the benefits of greater integration. Uh, we had uh, last year one of your colleagues from Stanford, Walter Scheidel, the classical historian who wrote a big book about inequality and catastrophe. He argued in the book that you only get profound shifts in times uh, in, 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 in the radical inequality, economic inequality of our age, either through revolution or catastrophe or war. Given that the issue and the problem, some people see at least the problem of inequality is one of the dominant ones of our age, do you expect COVID um, to have any impact on economic structures of things. We see in the news today that Biden is proposing a fairly significant uh, raise to, to, to tax. Yes, I mean, I think 
uh, disease itself isn't necessarily a great leveler. I mean, it can be. That was how people thought about the Black Death in the in the 14th century, that it struck nobles and peasants uh, with equal uh, uh, mercilessness. But in the case of COVID, we can see that the, the probability of getting COVID and the probability of dying of COVID uh, was higher amongst poorer uh, groups and, and ethnic minorities, not only in the United States, but, but elsewhere. And I suspect when we finally calculate the death tolls, and who knows when we'll be able to say finally this is over, uh, we'll find that there were really uh, disastrous outcomes in a number of relatively poor countries. At the moment, Peru, I think, has one of the highest excess mortality rates, uh, much higher than, than the United States. But what happens in the wake of a disaster like this, whether it's a war uh, or a pandemic, is that there is a strong political impulse uh, to level society and to address the problem of inequality. And I think we're already seeing that. I think the pandemic is the reason Donald Trump was not re-elected. I think if you take COVID out of the equation, he would have been handily re-elected. It's the reason that there was sufficient uh, energy on the Democratic side to get Joe Biden elected. And, and Joe Biden, although he's thought of as a centrist, is, is presiding at this point over a, a pretty radical administration that is aiming to do large-scale redistribution, uh, expansion of the scope of the state. And we now learn it's going to partly finance it, but only partly finance it with, with higher taxes on the rich. Uh, so this is the kind of thing Walter Scheidel's talking about in his book. Uh, and I think it, it, it's unsurprising. Peacetime, if you just leave a free society to its own devices uh, without disaster and without disruption, will tend to become uh, a more unequal society uh, because the, the, the talented and the lucky will do well. And uh, the better they do, the, the more money they'll be able to make. That has been the story, really, of uh, life in the United States since the end of the Cold War. Uh, along comes a disaster like COVID, and there is an opportunity for a significant attempt, and it may not succeed, but attempt at least to address those inequalities. I say it may not succeed because, of course, Andrew, ironically, all the monetary and fiscal stimulus that there's been since last year to try to keep the economy uh, going and bring about a recovery has overwhelmingly benefited up until this point the the wealth holders, the people with significant uh, financial assets and real estate. So uh, the project is certainly to reduce inequality. One hears that on a daily basis from the Biden administration, but but it hasn't begun to happen yet. On the contrary, inequalities have been widening. Did you have a good, or have you had a good plague? I have. I'm almost embarrassed by the fact that it was so good. But then I'm a kind of antisocial misanthropic type who quite enjoys being uh, isolated with nothing to do but read books and, and write them. So and you, then you have dedicated your book to your mother and your children. So you can't be quite as antisocial as you claim. Well, I, I see my family with, with pleasure, and I'd rather see my family than, than most other people. So this has actually been great for for me, and insofar as they can put up with me, it's been great for them, particularly for my younger kids who were actually in the same uh, house as me. My older kids have been on the other side of the Atlantic, and I haven't been able to see them other than on, on Zoom and other platforms. But yeah, I think I'm not that sociable a person, and I don't really, I didn't feel any great la lacking in my life, not going to, to cocktail parties or dinner parties. In fact, I realized that I don't miss those things at all. And uh, 
I feel a bit embarrassed by the fact that I, I had a good plague because it's been so utterly miserable for, for so many people, not to, not to mention uh, deadly. I'm, I suspect I actually had COVID right at the beginning. I, I mentioned this in the book because I was in uh, Asia at the beginning of 2020 and developed a really nasty cough, uh, the worst of my life in the aftermath of that trip. But because there was absolutely no testing capacity in California, I never could find out if I'd had COVID and I probably will never find out, which is an odd thing. So I don't know. It, it was For me, it was an opportunity to stop traveling, to get off the globalization carnival uh, and just sit down in one place for one year uh, and get back to what is really my my core competence, writing history. Uh, I, I've been very lucky in being able to do that. Uh, but of course, many others have had a tough, tough time. Uh, Neil, you're too good a historian to make real predictions about which countries have had or will emerge stronger or weaker. But you do say that a catastrophe, uh, you're quoting Nietzsche here, separates the fragile from the resilient and the anti-fragile, quoting uh, Nassim Taleb's uh, what you call wonderful word. Uh, between you and I, any 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 instincts about the China-America relationship? Who is going to emerge stronger from this? Well, I'm one of those historians who doesn't mind uh, making uh, predictions. After all, we study history, I think, in order to have a better handle on, on what's likely to come. I mean, one can never be certain, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. Most people are overrating uh, the sort of gains that China has made, and they're overestimating the damage that the United States has, has sustained. And uh, my sense is that uh, we're beginning to see more clearly as the vaccination uh, programs play out, uh, that although the US was very bad at containing the spread of, of the virus, it's, it's turned out to be very good at dealing with the problem because the US vaccines, uh, as well as uh, uh, some of the European vaccines, uh, have much higher efficacy than, say, the Chinese vaccines. I also think, Andrew, it's interesting how much damage the Chinese did to their own international reputation, not only by the way they handled the outbreak, but by the way they subsequently used so-called wolf warrior diplomacy to try to kind of bend the narrative their way. I think this mostly backfired. And if you look at sentiment towards China around the world, it's become a good deal more negative than it was back in 2019. It wasn't just an American phenomenon. I think generally there's been a shift against Xi Jinping's uh, government. So my sense is that the US comes out of this a lot better than the New York Times would like you to uh, uh, do. A doomiest of newspapers. Yeah. I mean, the, the Why, uh, I'm not sure we share the same politics. I think I'm further to the left than you. But what is it about the left in America that makes it so doomy? Uh, you've been involved recently in more fights at Stanford about Scott Atlas and this, you know, cancel culture stuff, which I don't really want to get into in this interview. But what is it about doom that attracts progressives in America? Well, part of the answer to that, Andrew, is that Marx, uh, whom some of them still read, does predict an apocalypse. I mean, in Das Kapital, Marx's argument is that the system of capitalism is heading towards a monumental crisis. Well, he wasn't entirely uh, wrong, was he? Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still waiting. Uh, capitalism uh, is doing great. It's communism that in 
in most places where it's been tried has has failed. So that's part of the answer. I, th I think the other part of the answer is that the period after Donald Trump's election produced a tremendous overreaction amongst many people. And, and this sense that, uh, that the, the republic was about to end, uh, that this was Weimar America, the republic was doomed, that some kind of uh, dictatorship was imminent. I mean, this, this was being argued by intelligent people. Uh, people from my old friend Andrew Sullivan to Tim Snyder and I, my attitude to this was please and this is not 1920s 1930s Germany so the sense that we were in a massive systemic crisis uh, was there really from the minute the 2016 election result came through and in reality uh, and this has of course been borne out by subsequent events the system worked uh, and it, it delivered not only a check at the midterms, it delivered multiple checks in the courts, and uh, and Trump proceeded to lose the election, and his attempts to challenge the the outcome of the election failed ignominiously, and he's vanished from the scene uh, to an extent that I think has surprised many people. So this this I think gave rise to a kind of market for doom. If if you thought the the American Republic was in its last days, you kind of wanted the New York Times to validate that narrative. I think we can now see that it was a greatly exaggerated risk and that, in fact, the U.S. system is quite well designed to deal with someone like Donald Trump becoming president because the founding fathers always knew that somebody like that would likely become president. That's why they designed the U.S. Constitution to have a separation of powers. And I'd say the system, the system worked under a very serious stress test, but it worked. Finally, Neil, uh, you may be conservative politically, but I'm culturally, I'm not so sure. Some of the dystopias that you write about in the book, at the end of the book, and this was a section I enjoyed, you know, you're, you're keen on Margaret Atwood, you're keen on Zamyatin, although I guess he's not on the left, um, and William Gibson. Uh, you're not entirely positive. You do believe in dystopia in a sense, don't you? Well, yes. Uh, this is one of these things that one has to kind of tease out of uh, the political polarization of our time. I mean, you say I'm I'm conservative. I think that's true relative to the overwhelming majority of, of, of the Stanford faculty. But I mean, that doesn't mean that I'm a card-carrying, uh, MAGA hat-wearing Republican. I'm just somewhere uh, closer to the traditions of the Scottish Enlightenment and, uh, and of classical liberalism than I am to woke ideology, which seems to me profoundly illiberal. But here you see, I think, some of the worst dystopias that have been imagined by, by writers are, are really dystopias that were realized in Stalin's Soviet Union or, or Mao's China. After all, the most influential dystopian novel of them all is 1984. Yeah, which I did. It's, so, it's so influential, I didn't put it up. It was too boring but, to but put it up. But it's still the bestseller, isn't it? And it's a vision of a totalitarian Britain, a totalitarian world. And I do think that's still the, the worst kind of doom that we risk stumbling into, not just because China's becoming more powerful with that same system of a one-party state that has total powers of surveillance, but also because I sense that in the Western world, people are no longer as, as committed to the fundamental principles of a free society, which do include free speech, uh, freedom of conscience, freedom of assembly, that sort of slipping away. And there's a kind of soft totalitarianism that begins to happen uh, when 
uh, on university campuses, for example, uh, there are letters of denunciation, quasi show trials, due process goes out the window. That kind of thing is troubling to me because it suggests that you can actually have the totalitarian dystopia without the dictators. People kind of volunteer to behave as if they're in a totalitarian society. But, you know, the key thing about that part of the book is that it's an attempt to think about the history of the future. Uh, it's it's all very well to try to learn from the past, and I do that for most of my uh, my day. But some of the time, you want to think about the future, and that's that's not something that historians necessarily do well. Science fiction writers do it very well. Of course, they predict a lot of things that don't come about. But I found that getting back into science fiction back in 2019 really helped me to think about what struck us in 2020, because the surprising amount of science fiction is about problems like uh, pandemics. So I've really enjoyed combining history and science fiction in this book and, and trying to write a history of the future. Well, if you want intelligent doom, you'll get it with Niall Ferg uh, Neil, not Niall. I, I, I avoided that mistake right until the end, Neil. Uh, <laughs> Never mind, Andrew, I forgive Ferguson's you. The politics are doom, the politics of catastrophe. As intelligent as all his work, extremely readable. Congratulations on the book. You're stuck in Palo Alto amongst those fellow communists at Stanford, Niall, uh, Neil. Uh, what else should people be reading in, in addition to your book? Well, a, a couple of recommendations. Uh, my colleague, H.R. Uh, McMaster, uh, who was National Security Advisor under he who must not be named uh, has written a terrific book, Battlegrounds. And, and it's you, worth reading. You have a, a, a podcast with him as well, don't you? We do Goodfellas together with John Cochran, but it's worth reading because I think HR really, he was behind a transformation of US strategy towards China, which noticeably the Biden administration is continuing. And the other thing I'd like to plug uh, is Making Sense by my good friend Sam Harris. Some of you may know his wonderful podcast. Uh, but if you're like me and kind of slightly prefer reading to listening to podcasts, it's great to have some of Sam Harris's greatest hits in 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 print. So I hope that's a, I hope that's a good enough uh, plug for those two friends. Great plug, great interview. Neil Ferguson's Doom: The Politics of Catastrophe uh, is out. When you listen to this, it's still got a week before uh, it hits the bookshelves. Congratulations on the book, Neil. Keep well and uh, look forward to having you back on the show in the not too distant future. Thanks very much, Andrew.